One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 1 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. This is Part 1 of a two-part case. Listener caution is advised as this episode contains adult themes and descriptions that some listeners may find distressing. On a small holding in the northeast of England, a three-year planning dispute between a former steelworker and the local council was streamed live to millions of homes across Britain. The confrontation, which left one man dead and two injured, would result in a police siege against a gunman who had amassed an armoury of weapons that included a cannon that was ready to be mounted to the front of a car. In 1989, 49-year-old Albert Dryden had spent more than £5,000 building a summer house for his mother. During the 1980s, Dryden had used part of the £20,000 he received as a redundancy package when his employer, a local steelworks, went out of business. He purchased a small holding on Eliza Lane set amongst rolling green fields near the village of Buttsfield, County Durham. 
Albert Dryden would later call that small piece of land his main pleasure in life. He came from a large family and was described by most locals as a harmless eccentric, not necessarily bright, however highly inventive. He lived approximately four miles south on Priestman Avenue in the town of Concert, where he lived with his mother and one of his brothers. Before any construction had taken place on his small holding, during March of 1984, Dryden had met with Harry Collinson, a Derwentside Council Chief Planning Officer. He explained to Collinson that he wanted to erect some buildings. The two had a friendly relationship and the planning officer had visited Eliza Lane on several occasions. There is no record of what was said precisely between the two men. However, Dryden came away from that conversation under the impression that he had been given the go-ahead to build what he wanted and no planning permission was needed. In the summer of 1984, Dryden started construction with the first of the buildings, a shed, completed before he built a greenhouse in May of the following year. On the land, Dryden also grew vegetables and stored several vintage American vehicles. Two years later in 1987, although accounts vary, Dryden again contacted Harry Collinson to discuss his plans to build a sunken bungalow, or what he would refer to as a summer house, on the allotment he owned. Court documents state that Collinson told Dryden there was not enough land on which to build. Dryden would claim that he filled out the correct forms, presented his plans to the council, but alleged that he had been fobbed off, so frustrated he proceeded without permission. During 1988, he dug a large hole in the ground, displacing 2,000 tonnes of earth, and constructed a sunken bungalow next to the greenhouse he had built a few years earlier. As the construction was coming to an end in 1989, a council employee visited Albert Dryden's property and issued him with a notice which requested the buildings be demolished. Mr Dryden's dream home in the country is in a bit of a hole. He burrowed down into the earth because planning restrictions wouldn't allow him to build the house in the conventional manner at ground level. And he thought he'd got around and underneath the planning laws. Mr Dryden wants to retire to his small holding near the village of Buttsfield. But the local council was far from happy, not to say sceptical, about the whole project. The property had breached the Durham County structure plan and would make the area unattractive for tourists. Dryden was told he had three months to carry out the work. He refused. The case was appealed at a planning inquiry held in January 1990. Nobody thought it could be done. And when I got up and the roof got on, then they realised he's getting away with something and we're going to have to stop him. But it is a bit of a crazy venture, isn't it? Well, it You'd is. You have to accept that. It is, but it'd be a worthwhile one. You see, this is only half the project. The other half is a, a, a nuclear fallout shelter to go on the back. Dryden was interviewed before the inquiry and spoke about what he would do if he was told he had to demolish the bungalow. Are you prepared to knock it down? No. No, no, no. I might blow it down, dynamite it, 
I'll blow it up. I'll blow it up. But the council won't have any hand in it. I'll do it myself. At the inquiry, the local council was represented by solicitor Michael Dunstan, who argued that the building had to come down. From Concert Civic Centre, Dryden threatened that he would, quote, sell the land to gypsies if the council did not accept his demands and leave the building standing. He proclaimed that he would give Derwentside Council one hell of a headache. Unsurprisingly, Albert Dryden lost his appeal and was told he had until June 1990 to demolish both the bungalow he had built for his mother and a greenhouse next to it. Derwentside District Council is the local planning authority. They say there can be no exceptions. The planning law is the planning law. I don't think we could bend the rules at all. I think in the interest of everyone else in the, in the area, uh, we plan's here to protect the countryside, and uh, this is a very attractive environment, a very attractive open country in that particular part of the district, and uh, to have a house there, I think, is definitely contrary to the council's policy. Even though it's built in a hole? Yes. And very little of it shows above ground? It still requires planning permission. News of the dispute reached the local press and Dryden was interviewed during March of that year. Well, it's important to us because, I mean, I'm 50 years old and I have nowhere else to put my time in. And my mother, I don't think my mother has much time left to live, like she's 84, you know. And you've put all your money into I've it. I've put all my money into it and I've nothing left. And I've had to send money to the Secretary of State and different things and uh, phone calls and it's cost us a tremendous amount of money and I'm causing nobody any harm. Oh, they're not going to demolish it. There's nobody will come in here. I'll fight force with force. He spoke of his determination to take his battle all the way to the European Court of Human Rights. He said, There's no way this is the end of it. I want to appeal to the High Court in London and if I lose there... I'll go all the way to Europe. That could take as long as five years, and in the meantime, I won't be moving a single brick. Dryden told reporters that he was prepared to compromise, perhaps by lowering the level of the roof so it was out of sight, but stated, After all the effort and money I've put into it, I'm not giving up now, and if the council tries to come here and knock it down, they'll have to do it over my dead body. Harry Collinson, the Derwentside Council planning chief, spoke to the press about the issues with Albert Dryden and the potential that he could be brought before a magistrate if he chose not to demolish the bungalow and the adjoining greenhouse. The planning officer said, An enforcement notice now comes into effect and that means that Mr Dryden must remove the two buildings. The onus is on him to demolish them. If he doesn't do it within the time period of the notice in this case three months, he will be committing an offence and could be prosecuted in a magistrate's court. If he pays the fines and still doesn't take the buildings down, ultimately there is a reserve power which would allow the council to demolish them in default. The council has already given my department the authority to take legal action if necessary. However, the dispute seemed to be short-lived when a month later it was reported that Albert Dryden would be giving up his fight to keep the bungalow. 
He claimed that the stress brought on by the council had led to the death of his 84-year-old mother, Nora. As the publicity surrounding the disagreement had grown, Nora Dryden had been unwell and suffered a heart attack following a televised interview with her son. Though she survived the heart attack, there was a rapid decline in her health before she passed away. Dryden claimed the main reason he built the property was for his mother. I haven't got the heart to carry on, he said. I'd rather have my mother back than this. While he would be giving up the fight to keep the bungalow, Dryden said he would still be pursuing action against the Derwinside planning officials. It gathered close to 130 signatures in a petition calling for their instant dismissal due to their behaviour. While planning officers were sympathetic, leader of the Derwentside District Council Joe Ryan said, It does not alter the fact that people should not go ahead and build whatever they want without permission. By the start of June 1990, over three months after Albert Dryden had received an enforcement order to demolish his bungalow, the building was still standing. Dryden had received a letter from Derwentside County Council telling him to take down the property, but he informed council workers that he had injured his back, so he was unable to carry out the work. The council were adamant the bungalow had to be demolished in spite of Dryden's injuries and implemented the enforcement notice. Dryden was told if he did not take action, the council would be doing it for him. Chief Planning Officer Harry Collinson was quoted as saying, We can't and won't let this matter drop because we are under instruction from the council committee to get the building down. As the months passed, Dryden made further attempts to keep the building intact and tried to persuade councillors to let him keep the bungalow by converting the premises so it could be used to house livestock. But by the end of the year, Dryden's solicitor was again informed the bungalow had to come down. Dryden told the council that once he had moved his livestock out, he would start the demolition process. Despite Albert Dryden's promise that the building would be demolished, the dispute continued well into the following year and the story was often covered by the local media. Even friends of Dryden's were getting involved. John Graham travelled to the council offices with a live cockerel under his arm and after becoming so agitated with Harry Collinson, he threw the bird into the council planner's face. The tension was building between the two sides. The council were insisting that it would be instructing solicitors to start prosecution proceedings, but Albert Dryden was now claiming to the press that he had made a complaint with the local government ombudsman and made an appeal to the Department of the Environment. In a response, he'd received a template letter in which a portion read, Unless you hear from us to the contrary, you may assume that your appeal is valid. Dryden presumed this meant the council's decision was being investigated by the Department of the Environment and he had a channel through which he was appealing the decision. 
He had tried to plead with the council that he would not live in the property and would be willing to change the roof covering, but claimed to the press that the council simply refused to address any of his compromises. Dryden was now also insisting that during the building process he had consulted with council planners and they had misled him, which caused the issue. A primary investigation was undertaken by the government ombudsman and Chief Planning Officer Harry Collinson was again interviewed. Although unaware of Dryden's appeal with the Department of the Environment, he said that the only ground on which Dryden would have a valid argument was if the inspector at the inquiry hearing, in which Collinson was not present, had made an error in law, and by all accounts, he had not. During April 1991, a summons was served on Dryden to demolish the bungalow, but he did not comply and alleged the council were corrupt. He instead elected that he would rather go to trial. It was now the middle of 1991, and rather than face further delays with a court case, Derwentside Council decided that on Thursday, June 20th, 1991, bulldozers would be arriving on Albert Dryden's land at Eliza Lane to demolish the bungalow he had built. Defiant to the end, Dryden was again interviewed by the press and said, I'm confident it won't come down. I don't believe the council has the legal right to come on and demolish the building. I'm certainly not going to stand by and let it happen. At the time of the dispute, the guidance a council authority must follow when an occupier or owner has constructed a building without planning permission as set out by Parliament. In some rare instances, these could be agreed retrospectively. However, if planning permission would not have been granted in the first instance, then an enforcement order would be placed against the person responsible. This decision can be petitioned in one of two ways either through a public inquiry or through an appeal in which both sides would present evidence with an environment department inspector deciding the outcome. If the person responsible loses, they would be asked to demolish the building in question. If they choose not to, then the council would only be able to take action if agreed through a committee. True to his word, Albert Dryden did not stand idly by and watch his bungalow be demolished. On June 21, 1991, the headlines read, Gun death drama on camera. Terror in the firing line. Three shot down by crazed gunmen. And finally, horror at bungalow bills. By 9am on Thursday, June 20th, the demolition of Albert Dryden's bungalow should have been well underway. The date and time were known among the local community and word had reached the press. Fifteen minutes earlier, a crowd had gathered outside the small holding on Eliza Lane that included some of Dryden's supporters, council workers 
and a demolition crew. A reporter for BBC Look North Tony Belmont was also present filming the proceedings with a camera crew, along with planning officer Harry Collinson and solicitor for the council Michael Dunstan. Three police officers also attended the scene in order to keep the peace. The small holding at the centre of today's incident has been the subject of a long-running planning row. It involved a bungalow built on the site which Derwentside Council said didn't have planning permission. The bungalow was built 10 feet below the ground by 51-year-old Albert Dryden. The former concert steelworker had put his redundancy money into the small holding and had built it himself. Locals called it the house in the hole. Albert Dryden claimed it was a summer house for his mother. It became his obsession, but he was building without planning permission and was continually frustrated. The dispute over the bungalow stretches back to 1989, when Albert Dryden started building without planning permission. While his friends saw him as one man fighting the planning bureaucracy, Derwenside Council viewed him as someone determined to buck the system. When a person determines to book the system, to uh, resist, and to turn and avoid and, and fight uh, decisions rightly reached, then um, no, I, I think I might be inclined to raise the question, who was harassing who? Albert Dryden and the council were now set on a collision course. He appealed again. like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This episode of They Walk Among Us is brought to you in association with Centair. Ever entered a seemingly perfect space only to feel like something was missing? That's where Centair comes in. With over three decades of experience, Centair leads the scent marketing industry, scenting resorts, retail outlets, event spaces and more, partnering with major brands like Westin Hotels and Snap Fitness. Chances are you've already encountered their fragrances firsthand. And now Scentair is offering you a luxury fragrance experience in the comfort of your home. 
Visit scentair.com to explore their online store and infuse your spaces with unforgettable scents. Scentair diffusers are sleek and fill your space with vivid fragrance for up to 300 hours. And the Scentair app lets you schedule your fragrance and control your intensity right from your phone. What's more, all of Scentair's more than 60 fragrances are phthalate-free, cruelty-free, safe for families and EcoVad is certified sustainable. Differentiate your space with scent. Try luxury home fragrance trusted by the pros by going to Scentair.com and using promo code AMONGUS for an extra 25% off your first order. That's promo code AMONGUS for an extra 25% off your first order at Scentair.com. Earlier that morning, before Dryden left the terrace property on Priestmond Avenue in concert that he shared with his older brother Alan, he told him, I'll be back in time for tea. After arriving at Eliza Lane, Gary Willey, a journalist for the Newcastle Evening Chronicle, began speaking to Albert Dryden, who at first tended to his livestock before nailing two notices to a board placed on a gate at the entrance of the property. One was the correspondence he received from the Department of the Environment that included the line, Unless you hear from us to the contrary, you may assume that your appeal is valid. The other letter was from Dryden's solicitor. Both a council employee and a camera operator for the BBC had been recording the morning's events which were being transmitted live throughout millions of homes across Britain. And there's an appeal there, you see. It's, it's all in order. And there's a letter from me solicitor, you see. And... It's a bad job if I can't wait. Five weeks for the inspector to make his decision. That's all we want. Uh, as I say, this is private property and there's two gates on here. And they've trespassed on a number of occasions. We've had Mr. Collinson to the county court recently and he has to go back again. Dryden believed that the council had no right to demolish his bungalow and an appeal had been registered. Police Constable Stephen Campbell, who knew Dryden and was also at the property, confirmed that at first Dryden seemed collected and his behaviour was not out of the ordinary. At 9.05am, 46-year-old Harry Collinson, the lead principal planning officer, walked to the entrance of Albert Dryden's property. Collinson met Dryden, who was behind a padlocked metal gate. There was also a small sign that read, Bless this house, O Lord, we pray. Make it safe by night and day. Collinson began speaking to Dryden, who made a last-minute plea to postpone the demolition. He told Collinson that a planning inspector had contacted his solicitor and would be viewing the site in five weeks' time then a decision would be made. In five weeks' time, mm-hmm. and he'll go back and make a decision. Well, it doesn't say that. Um, where does it say well, that? I have another letter well, confirming you, that. You me the other I'm letter? not going to show you the other letter, but I, there's a, there's a, this chap's coming out in five weeks' time. But you haven't got a letter? I have a letter. Well, can you show me that letter? No, because it's in the hands of my solicitor, and he's coming sometime this morning. And that's Collinson's attention was directed to the notices nailed to Dryden's gate and he was again told the council would not be accessing the property this way. Attempts were made by Collinson to calm the rising tension, but he eventually informed Dryden that the notices meant little in this situation. 
Dryden then announced that he had locked three goats and 16 hens in the bungalow, so the council would need to wait until the RSPCA arrived before doing anything. Collinson again asked for Dryden's cooperation to allow them to come through the gated entrance. He refused. Collinson explained in that case, a crew operating an excavator would have to smash through the fence on Dryden's property. We'll have to, we'll obviously have to take the fence down with the machine. So if you want, you can have some time to remove the fence yourself to minimise the damage. Do you want to do that? No. I'm asking you one more time to let this appeal go through. And I'm asking you to wait five weeks. If you don't, the consequences, you'll have to sacrifice what set Albert Dryden protested and said the machinery would damage several beech trees that were subject to a preservation order and the council would be liable. If you, if you, if you obstruct us in trying to do this, you appreciate that any damage that's subsequently caused as a result of you preventing us doing that is, will be your liability. Well, you might not be around to see the outcome of this disaster. Now, you've been warned. Can you explain what you mean by that? Well, I'm not going to explain, but if you had any sense, you would go away now and wait five weeks for the outcome of that. Right? That's my last word on it. If you show me the letter referring I to the final I can't delay, show you the letter. We will consider. I've told you where the letter is. Michael Dunstan, a solicitor for the council, was also present, and while he argued with Dryden, Harry Collinson ordered that the excavator be moved towards a point near the fence through which the demolition crew would access the property. Surrounded by onlookers, the pair continued to argue before Dryden said, You do so at your own risk. It's entirely up to you. But you're making a sad decision. Collinson was also arguing with a friend of Dryden's, John Graham, as the camera crew filmed the exchange. At that moment, Albert Dryden walked away and headed towards a nearby caravan. He hasn't got a valid appeal. This is a delaying mechanism. Well, that one there says it's valid. It is not valid. Well, that one says on the letter, and I'm reading it. It does not it understand. It understands that it's valid. Upon his return, Albert Dryden was no longer wearing his jacket and had a gun holster strapped to his right leg. The long and bitter quarrel was not going to end well. Now armed with a 455 Webley Mark VI revolver, which he had retrieved from under the wheel arch of a caravan, Albert Dryden marched towards the fence in the direction of Harry Collinson. The press were eager to hear what he had to say, so ran towards him. At that moment, Dryden was described as looking like a cornered animal in an awful state. Journalist Gary Willey shouted, Albert, what are you doing? But his question went unanswered. Dryden was seen expressionless before he raised the handgun, a short distance from Harry Collinson, who stood on the other side of the fence. With his left hand, Dryden pulled back the hammer. Collinson and John Graham stopped arguing as they looked at Dryden. Can you get a shot of this gun? Out of it. 
most if not all of the bystanders thought this was a bluff. But it wasn't. Twelve seconds later, Dryden pulled the trigger. As a crack rang out from the weapon, the bullet that was fired hit Harry Collinson in the chest near his heart. He fell backwards to the ground and slumped into a ditch. No one at the scene was even sure what had just happened, and then panic set in as the crowd of onlookers began to flee in terror. Albert Dryden made his way through the fence, and he began repeatedly firing into the small crowd. His intended target was Michael Dunstan, the solicitor for the council who Dryden had met several times during his appeals. Dryden was shouting that he wanted to kill him. In the chaos, the gunman aimed at the solicitor. However, Tony Belmont, a reporter for the BBC, was in the line of fire and was struck in the arm. Scores of screaming bystanders scattered, some having to scramble over barbed wire as Dryden fired after them. Uniformed officer PC Stephen Campbell, who had been speaking with Albert Dryden only moments before, was struck by a bullet above his right buttock. Tony Belmont still managed to keep reporting at the scene. We were standing, we were standing watching what was going on. The chief planner um, was trying to persuade the chap to, to uh, move out the way and let the digger go in. And then uh, a shot rang out at the chief planner fell to the ground and I uh, I heard, felt a shot in the arm and I've clearly been shot here in the arm. I'm now hopefully going to get some medical treatment. Oh, policeman was also shot in the buttock here and, uh, and the councillor was shot in the chest. Swinging his gun back and forth shouting that he was going to get Michael Dunstan Albert Dryden again aimed the revolver at the crowds of people trying desperately to flee. A friend of Dryden's, Henry Thomas, was among them and heard Albert shouting threats, but after a few steps the gunman froze and spoke the words, It's all over now. Dryden emptied the revolver before loading it again. He went haywire, pointing his gun at the machinery near the fence and pulling the trigger several times. Two bullets hit an excavator and another struck a nearby Fort Fiesta. Dryden then turned and made his way back to the body of Harry Collinson. He pulled the trigger twice more and fired shots into the face and chest of his victim. The gunman looked in a confused state, almost unaware of what he had just done, before heading to a nearby caravan. A police car arrived with two officers inside, Inspector Jeff Young and Superintendent Stan Hegarty. Spotting the vehicle, Dryden aimed his handgun and fired in its direction, after which time the officers had no choice but to reverse at speed. Dryden went back to the caravan and once inside made himself a cup of tea as the chaos outside continued. It's now two hours since the first shot rang out. Albert Dryden has locked himself away in a caravan next to the bungalow. The caravan is surrounded by armed police. Two hurried calls had been made to the emergency services, 
and ambulances along with the rapid response team arrived at the scene. Mary Collinson's lifeless body could not be reached safely, but both 39-year-old father of four reporter Tony Belmont and 22-year-old PC Campbell had managed to reach cover and were rushed to Shotley Bridge Hospital to receive treatment. Police negotiators and marksmen surrounded the small holding while Albert Dryden remained in his caravan. He claimed he was armed with three grenades and the property was booby-trapped with landmines. Eventually from the caravan, Dryden communicated with another officer on site, Police Constable Philip Brown. Dryden seemed calm at first, surprising considering he had just murdered a man in cold blood and almost ended the lives of many more. During the conversation with police, he said, I am a very intelligent man. I know full well what's happened. Dryden told PC Brown that he was a marksman and would not miss a man's head from 90 yards. He stated his argument was not with the police and reportedly said, My only regret is that I did not get Dunstan. Dryden repeated his account of the events of that morning and said that he had tried to be fair and wanted to talk but that the council had used every dirty trick in the book. Becoming more animated and frustrated throughout their conversation, he explained to PC Brown that he was not finished and was not afraid to die. Asked where the handgun was, Dryden said that he had thrown it away. As the conversation progressed over the course of the next two hours, Dryden requested to speak to Detective Chief Inspector Arthur Proud, whom he knew and had previous dealings with. It was agreed that the police would hand Dryden a phone so he could communicate with the Detective Chief Inspector. Shortly after quarter past eleven, as Dryden left his caravan to obtain the phone, Sergeant John Taylor noticed that Dryden was not armed and saw his chance. He tackled Dryden to the ground, assisted by PC Philip Brown and PC Andy Ray. That was a dirty trick, said Dryden, as he was taken into police custody. While being transported to the station, Dryden was talking with officers and told them that Council Solicitor Michael Dunstan was next and Dryden had arranged for someone else, a good man, as he described him, to do the job. Tonight, a man is in custody following a fatal shooting outside a remote bungalow near Consett in County Durham. It should have been a routine end to a three-year planning row, but when officials from Derwentside Council arrived with bulldozers to demolish Albert Dryden's bungalow, built without planning permission, they were refused access. A senior council officer was shot dead, a police officer and a BBC television reporter were injured when they were confronted by a man wielding a gun. After the shooting, armed police rushed to the scene and surrounded a caravan. Trained negotiators were brought in and a state of siege was declared. It was revealed that Mr Dryden did not have a licence for his gun and there were fears that he could have other weapons. Two hours later, Mr Dryden was brought out of the caravan and arrested by firearms officers. The scene of the shooting remains sealed off this evening. Police say that the bungalow at the heart of the dispute has been booby-trapped. It was supposed to be a routine... 
after the shooting, both BBC reporter Tony Belmont and PC Campbell were in a stable condition following surgery. When he was shot, Tony Belmont had a considerable amount of flesh torn from his lower forearm and the bone was severely damaged. The reporter would later say of the incident, As I turned, I felt an enormous pain like a massive electric shock go through my arm and realised I had been shot and dived behind a nearby vehicle. I was aware the gunman could be on the loose, so I ripped off my jacket and began running. Some people were standing about. They had not realised what had happened, so I shouted to them to get out of the way. If I had been shot again, I would have had no chance. A team of bomb disposal experts arrived at the bungalow as police had feared the area might be booby-trapped. Thirteen Royal Engineers were also flown in by helicopter to detonate any explosives that were found. The body of Planning Officer Harry Collinson has only recently been removed from the scene. Army and police officers have brought in generators and lighting. They're preparing for a long operation. It's, uh, it's unsafe to approach the buildings in the sound- surrounding area at the moment, we think. You haven't found so any rather any than weapon? take any chances... Was yeah, it some we... sort of booby trap or something? I'm not prepared to see it. Is that what it know. is, though? I don't know. We don't know. Is that what you suspect, then? I suspect that it's very unsafe to go in there at this yeah. stage, and I'm not prepared to risk any officer yeah. or any member of the public to get anywhere near that place until we happy yeah. that it's safe. The detective superintendent leading the inquiry, Alan Miller, later confirmed that after the caravan, bungalow and outbuildings were searched, no bombs were discovered. However, when asked for further information by the press, he would not be drawn into the detail and did not disclose what other items were recovered from the small holding. The animals that Dryden had kept on site were passed to local farmers to look after. The day following the shooting, the media were quick to label Albert Dryden, Bungalow Bill, and the incident made headlines across most major newspapers in Britain. Superintendent Stan Hegarty, who was shot at during the incident, told reporters, At the time, we sent three officers to the scene. We did not know he was armed. He had no previous history of violence. I think we've, we've handled the spontaneous incident in a very efficient manner. Uh, unfortunately, there's been tragic results uh, from what originally did not seem to be a serious incident. Um, once the incident did occur, we dealt with it uh, as well as we could have under the circumstances. Dryden's brother Alan said that before Albert left that day, he never mentioned that he was going to confront anyone from the council. Calling his brother Albie, Alan also spoke about how he felt towards his brother. He said, I don't know what must have come over Albie. He is not a violent man, and I didn't even know he had a gun. The place was his pride and joy. He built it with his bare hands and used the redundancy money from the steelworks to do it. But whatever else, I will stand by him. Local residents were interviewed and described their complete shock at the horrific events. George Cameron is a lifelong friend. He was present at the bungalow on the day of the shootings and still believes Dryden's actions were those of a desperate man and totally out of character. 
And if any of the children come with a broken wheelbarrow or a broken bike, he would fix it, no bother, no hesitation. If they ever wanted anything repaired, they used to take it to Albert, Albert would repair it, and that's the kind of bloke he was. He wouldn't, wouldn't harm anything. In fact, even now when I talk about him, I fell up uh, to think that these, this is what's happened. And in one sense, two lives ruined, one Mr Collison's life and second his own. A regular at Dan's Castle, a pub in Tow Law where Dryden used to drink, said. He was eccentric but friendly. I could never have expected anything like this. John Graham, a friend of Dryden's who had a front row seat at Eliza Lane during the shooting, said. Albert never wanted any trouble. All he ever wanted was to be allowed to build his bungalow. In the past, some other acquaintances had suggested to Dryden that he should increase the size of the plot he owned, as that way he would have been legally entitled to a home on the land, as it would have qualified as an agricultural holding. Bruce Unwin, a local news reporter who was also at the incident, recounted the moments just before the shooting. He told the Newcastle Evening Chronicle, I was standing about 15 feet behind Mr Collinson alongside BBC reporter Tony Belmont. I saw Mr Dryden approach and the next thing I heard was a bang and Mr Collinson slumped backwards into a ditch. It obviously all came as a great shock and I think I expected Mr Dryden to then retreat back on his own land. But instead, he straddled the fence and approached myself, the BBC news team, other council officials and the police officers, and kept on shooting. After his arrest, Albert Dryden appeared before Derwentside Magistrates Court charged with murder. Dressed in an open neck check shirt and tweed jacket, his facial hair was unkempt. Dryden was handcuffed, flanked between two detectives. He was informed he would be remanded in police custody until a further hearing the following week. An application for bail was not made and at the time reporting restrictions remained in place. As news of the shooting made the headlines across the UK it was reported that Dryden had spoken to reporter Gary Willey from the Evening Chronicle newspaper only days before the incident. In the interview, Dryden made a series of threats in which he stressed he would use firearms to keep any bulldozer off his land. He also said that he had been practising with a machine gun. And he left the doorstep where we were talking, came back with a large... I'm not a... And a gun's man, but what he said was a, uh, a spent machine gun bullet. It was certainly about three or four inches long brass. Said he'd been up on the moors practicing with it and that he had the, the weapons to cut through a JCB and to cut through the driver with it. While Dryden's comments were not printed, they were reported in a telephone call to the staff at the concert police station a few days before Harry Collinson lost his life. The newspaper questioned why, given the information they had been provided, the force chose to initially send only three officers, one sergeant and two constables. 
police's reaction uh, were, to, were to say to our reporter, well, we'll, uh, we'll take it into consideration. But uh, as it uh, transpired, uh, they don't appear not to have taken it so seriously because they said he had no record of, uh, of having had firearms previously or no record of violence. Eddie Marchant, the assistant chief constable for Durham Police Operations, was interviewed and said, Information about threats made by Dryden had been casually passed to police by a local reporter during a routine call. Uh, Mr. Willie, uh, in his conversation with the police officer, uh, it casually passed on, and I mean, I use the words casually passed on to the police officer, that uh, Dryden had been commenting about the fact that he'd been on the moors shooting. Mr. Willie himself did not believe that. And in fact, uh, he only passed on the information a few days later, and that was in a routine call uh, to the police office. The information was looked at in the context of all other information. Uh, Even Mr. Willie's friends who were present at the scene, they did not expect uh, him to behave as he did. And they were surprised. And unfortunately, we were. Tributes were paid to Harry Collinson, who was described as a wonderful man. Fellow council staff and local journalists that knew him said that Collinson was a diligent, consummate professional with endless patience. The flag outside Derwent side council offices was flying at half-mast this afternoon. The staff were deeply shocked at the death of a senior council officer. Harry Collinson, a divorcee with two children, had worked for the council for 16 years. As principal planning officer for the district, he dealt with many difficult planning matters. Neil Johnson, the Derwentside Council Chief Executive, spoke to the press and through streams of tears said that Collinson's devotion to his job had cost him his life. As each of the parties involved began pointing fingers as to who was responsible, a local businessman, Bob Young, whose mining enterprise employed a considerable amount of staff from Derwentside, alleged it was the council who were to blame, not Harry Collinson. Those responsible are not the council officer who got shot, but the chiefs who sent him there, he said. The decision on this property wasn't even unanimous. It only went through by the odd vote. I feel very strongly about this. They are to blame. In response, the District Council Chairman, Keith Murray Hetherington, stated, The Council's mistake has been acting with reason with someone who is completely unreasonable. The District Council Chairman went on to say, Our officers went along in order to try and reach a compromise, if a compromise could be reached. They were not heavy-handed, They were under instructions to try and reach an agreement if possible. I don't think any of us could have uh, envisaged what happened today. Um, Obviously there is uh, a a plotted history or a checkered history to this uh, incident, but uh, I don't think any of us could have uh, foreseen what happened. It was noted that Albert Dryden did not have a firearms licence and that any weapons he might have had in his possession were illegally held. Theresa May, a parliamentary candidate at the time for North West Durham, said, 
our public servants have the right to expect that they can carry out their duties in safety. She called for a further review to be carried out on the country's gun laws. At the time, a person could own a firearm, providing they held the licence. George Harrison, a councillor for Derwinside District Council, was also interviewed and said it was in fact the police who were to blame, as they had been informed of Dryden's intentions a few days before the shooting. He stated, Police have some very serious questions to answer. The councillor pointed out there was 12 seconds between Dryden raising the weapon and him pulling the trigger. During this period, the councillor claimed that the police made no attempt to either wrestle Dryden to the ground or warn those people in the firing line to move out of the way. In a cruel twist of fate, a second letter from the Department of the Environment arrived on Albert Dryden's doormat. It said there would be no further planning delays and the demolition must go ahead. Dryden was under the impression that an appeal against the demolition was underway. However, this was not the case. Shortly before the shooting, he said that he would have relented if he was told by the Department of the Environment that the bungalow had to be taken down. This letter arrived two days after the shooting. While in custody, Albert Dryden was interviewed at length by police and he spoke of the evil men on the council. Multiple interviews took place, most of which were recorded. In the first, he described Harry Collinson as a, quote, very nasty man. As the interviews progressed, Dryden seemed unable to recall some of the details of the incident and slowly began to forget why he carried out the shooting and then was unable to recall the events at all. After Albert Dryden's arrest, police arrived at Eliza Lane and found a handful of homemade or modified weapons but it was when they searched through his property on Priestmond Avenue in the Grove Concert, they were genuinely shocked at what they found. Dryden had amassed an armoury of pistols, rifles, revolvers, shotguns, handguns, mortars, bull bearings, ammunition, rocket fuel and propane bombs. They even found a cannon which had been modified to fit onto a bracket that was welded to one of Dryden's vintage cars. He had also been making his own ammunition for the Webley Mark VI revolver, used to kill Harry Collinson, as he found it too challenging to obtain bullets for the firearm, as he did not hold the license. Casting them from lead in his workshop to inflict as much damage as possible, he reportedly referred to his creations as man-stoppers. On Wednesday, June 26, 1991, an inquest was held into the death of Harry Collinson. 
he had to be identified by one of his brothers, Frank. Home Office pathologist Harris Chandra Ranazin confirmed that Collinson's cause of death was hemorrhage and shock, caused by the three gunshot wounds suffered at the hands of Albert Dryden. It was confirmed at the inquest that Harry Collinson's body could not be removed from the scene and taken to a mortuary until 3.36pm, six and a half hours after Dryden had fired the fatal shots. The coroner Geoffrey Burt released the body so a funeral service could go ahead, however adjourned the inquest pending the outcome of the trial. While reports of the inquest were being relayed in the press, a disturbing amount of attention was being placed at the feet of Derwentside council staff, who began to receive hate mail. In spite of the terrible tragedy, letters addressed to the council's chief executive and recently deceased Harry Collinson referred to them as scum sycophants who were only interested in high salaries. The majority of letters were unsigned, However, one was reportedly from a collective calling themselves the Northern Area of the National Freedom Group. The council's case against Albert Dryden's unauthorised property development was put on hold, as there was now a public backlash requesting that an objective investigation be carried out into how planning decisions were being made. The funeral for Harry Collinson was held on Friday, June 28th at Mount Set Crematorium near Dipton, a short distance from the location of the shooting. 400 mourners attended the ceremony, including Collinson's widowed mother Mabel, his ex-wife and two children whom he had been devoted to. During the service, Harry was described by the Reverend as a gentle, kind and quiet man who had a serenity and contentment about him. Harry Collinson was raised with three brothers on a farm near Concert, close to the picturesque Derwent Valley. During his formative years, his father abandoned the family home shortly before passing away. Rather than follow in his father's footsteps and become a farmer like his brothers, Harry Collinson enrolled at Newcastle University, after which time he found work with the council. He truly loved the countryside and took great pride in his job. A reporter interviewed those close to Collinson after his death. They mentioned his calm demeanour and said he was a man that stuck to his principles even at his own detriment. Outside of work, Collinson's spare time was spent running market stalls that benefited children's charities, a detail few at his workplace knew about. A large amount of his estate was left to charity. Along with the charge of murder relating to the death of Harry Collinson, 
It was reported that Albert Dryden would also be facing additional charges of attempted murder following the injuries to PC Campbell and reporter Tony Belmont. Tony Belmont's arm would remain in a plaster cast for four months to allow it to fully heal. A piece of bone had to be grafted from his hip to his shattered arm with a six-inch plate supporting the graft. His recovery period was painfully slow as he required four operations to complete the surgery and wasn't able to return to work until the following year. The bullet that penetrated PC Campbell above his buttock could have been life-altering as it missed his spine by only two inches. At the start of July 1991, Dryden appeared at a remand hearing held at Derwentside Magistrates Court. In an appearance that lasted less than a minute, around 100 of his supporters had waited two hours to see him and cheered when he appeared. Although he never spoke a word and looked somewhat overwhelmed by the commotion, he raised his right arm and gave a victory salute. As the crowds cheered, one supporter shouted, Keep your head up, Albie. Dryden was quickly whisked out of the courtroom and taken back to Durham Jail where he was being held. George Cameron, a member of a group named The Supporters of Albert Dryden, told the Newcastle Journal that he had visited Dryden in prison. He was bearing up, but when you put someone who is used to being outdoors in a cell eight foot by eight, it has an effect, the supporter said. We talked for a while and he broke down at the end. He doesn't know what to make of all this support. He didn't know he had so many friends. Outside the court, supporters of Dryden's cause were collecting signatures for a petition that was to be handed to the council chief executive, Neil Johnson. The petition requested that a thorough review of the circumstances of the case be undertaken and all information gathered be released to the public. Close friends of Albert Dryden spent the weekend collecting in petitions which had been circulating concert. By the time he was due to make his third appearance before magistrates, the number who'd signed in his support was set to top 3,000. A crowd of around 150 had built up to welcome Albert Dryden. They cheered and applauded as he was driven into the court precincts. After the accused was remanded in custody for a further seven days, a small delegation from the crowd made their way to nearby Derwentside council offices. It had been nearly three weeks since the shooting, and at a plea and trial preparation hearing, Albert Dryden's lawyer, Philip Jones, put forward a request for his client to be released on bail. This was argued by Geoffrey Taylor, who was acting on behalf of the Crown, and appealed that this be denied. Albert Dryden was refused bail, and he would remain in custody. Only a few days later from his jail cell, Dryden gave his family approval to demolish the summer house. His brother Alan informed Derwentside Council they would be looking to carry out the work as soon as possible. At a council chambers meeting, Councillor Alex Watson said he had met with Dryden's family 
who were not seeking any publicity. The councillor said that they were sad and sick and tired and they would like it to be done as soon as possible. During the meeting it was agreed to adjourn proceedings to prosecute Dryden for non-compliance with the enforcement order. His family were given an unspecified amount of time to demolish the building. Meanwhile, the supporters of Albert Dryden had left countless cards and letters at the entrance to the bungalow on Eliza Lane, wishing him good luck, and they were thinking of him at this difficult time. At the start of August, it was reported that Albert Dryden would be going to trial to face charges of murder and attempted murder. While his legal team were preparing to go to court, his solicitor announced that he had changed his mind and Dryden would be fighting to keep the bungalow standing. His lawyer stated that they intended to keep the building from being demolished until after the trial. Dryden's lawyer was asked to submit written reasons for why they felt the building should remain standing, and while they did provide the council with rationale, this information was kept from the public. Soon after, it was announced that the decision to demolish the bungalow would be made at the High Court. While the council wanted to proceed with the demolition, the chief executive Neil Johnson decided that a higher view needed to be taken. As the decision was making its way to the High Court, from Newcastle Crown Court, Albert Dryden's defence counsel confirmed that his client would be pleading not guilty to all charges. Justice John Elliott remanded Dryden in custody until the trial, which was expected to last two weeks. As the year came to a close, support for Dryden was growing and a group naming themselves the Northern Anarchist Black Cross began distributing a four-page leaflet on a mass scale claiming that Albert Dryden had the backing of the Northern working class and only acted the way he did because he was pushed to his limits by the council. The group based in Sheffield announced they would be helping Dryden any way they could. It was soon announced that a trial would be taking place in March 1992. This is the end of episode one. To hear more about the trial, the outcome and what happened next, please tune in next time. Thank you for listening, and special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com.
don't forget to order your copy of our new book, They Walk Among Us, available on Thursday, May 30th, 2019, in paperback, ebook, and audiobook. Ten brand new, intriguing, and unsettling cases that we have not covered on the podcast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.